Good evening, everyone, and Happy New Year to you. Uh, for those of you who don't already know me, I'm Louise Mirror, President and CEO of New York Historical Society. And thank you. That's very nice of you. Um, and it is a great thrill to see so many of you here in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Um, we have a full complement of exciting exhibitions with which to begin the new year. You may have uh, noticed a, a long and beautifully illustrated review of our newest exhibition, uh, Gaudi's Maesta, which is a beautiful piece from our European collection, finally reunited with its two um, long missing panels. Uh, that's on the second floor. Of course, we have the history of computers in New York, Silicon City on this level, and superheroes in Gotham, uh, also on the second floor. So if you haven't seen any of those shows, I'm sure you'll want to return during regular museum hours and, uh, and visit them. Tonight's program, The Story, A Reporter's Journal, Journey, I'm sorry, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generosity um, which has allowed us to bring so many fine speakers, like our speakers this evening, and others to this auditorium. I'd like to thank and recognize our trustee, Glenn Louie, who is in the audience this evening, and also members of our Chairman's Council, whose support is so very important to the work that we do. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speakers' books will be available for sale in our museum shop, which is just to my left over there. We are so very pleased to welcome Judith Miller to the New York Historical Society. Ms. Miller is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, formerly of the New York Times. She is currently an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, contributing editor, of City Journal and a commentator for Fox News. She's written many books, including God Has 99 Names, Reporting from a Militant Middle East, and her memoir, which is the topic of this evening's conversation, The Story, A Reporter's Journey. We're very pleased to welcome Brett Stevens back to the New York Historical Society. He is our moderator for this evening. And as I mentioned already, we've been talking about his uh, um, his column in today's Wall Street Journal, which is very interesting, provocative as always. Thank you for that. Uh, Mr. Stevens is the foreign affairs columnist and deputy editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal. In 2013, he won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary. He served as the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and has written for foreign affairs and commentary, among other publications. He's won several awards for his work as a journalist, including the 2008 Eric Brendel Award for Excellence in Opinion Journalism and the 2010 Bastiat Prize. Uh, as always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please switch off your cell phones or anything else that makes a noise. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Thank you. Well, uh, thanks for coming out uh, this evening. Uh, it's a great uh, privilege uh, to uh, share uh, the stage tonight with someone who I think, uh, without reservation, I can say was one of the most, is one of the most uh, impressive uh, investigative uh, journalists uh, of uh, our generation. And uh, someone who, as you can tell, I really read it. I read it very <laughs> carefully. Um, has written a wonderful book that is um, both uh, autobiography, uh, a historical document, uh, an extraordinary insight into uh, journalism and journalism uh, at one institution in particular, um, and also uh, breaks news, as uh, Judy Miller so often uh, broke news over many years. So whatever else you take away, whatever your politics are, um, uh, I urge you to go, if you haven't read it, uh, to go and get copies of the book uh, after, we've, uh, after we've had our uh, conversation. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through this book uh, and just choose little passages about it, which I thought um, were worth pointing out. 
um, and then just have you, uh, Judy, uh, talk a little bit um, about them. Um, let's let's begin with your entry into the New York Times in 1977. You wrote, I got my job as a reporter in the New York Times' Washington Bureau in 1977 through affirmative action. It was the job of my dreams. It was also a job for which, by time standards, I was unqualified. But the paper hired me anyway. It needed women. <laughs> Now let's talk a little bit about that. What was it like to be one of the first women breaking that glass ceiling uh, at the Times when you were, what, 25, 26 years old? I was younger. <laughs> uh, no, I, I actually was uh, lucky uh, to get my job, uh, Brad, and thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. Um, because of some very brave women who had filed suit, a class action suit against the New York Times. And uh, they had been held back, uh, denied jobs, uh, had a five to $7,000 salary difference, which was real money in those days, 1977. Uh, and, uh, there were about 387 or 89 reporters at the paper, and there were about mm, 40 women <laughs> uh, who had jobs in the news section. And so when they filed their class action, the great hunt began for people like me. And when I went to uh, lunch in Washington with one of the people, John Finney, who is now now dead, but he said, uh, I thought he was asking me whether or not I wanted to cover national security or foreign policy. And he said, no, 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 we actually want you to cover the SEC. And I said, but I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, it doesn't matter <laughs> because it was clear that the desperation was That's the way intense. we feel about the Times' <laughs> SEC coverage as well at the Journal, but go ahead. Uh, so... <laughs> So it was, you know, it was, a, it was a strange place. It was a very, very male place. It was a very competitive place. But uh, they, men of the times quickly learned that the women could be just as competitive. And uh, I think uh, some of us were. Uh, there were about four who came into the Washington Bureau at one time. I was the only survivor. Um, let, me, let me push you a little bit about that because just in the last couple of years, Jill Abramson, uh, the first woman to be the executive editor of the Times, was... Uh, summarily uh, fired, and there were accusations uh, uh, very quickly surfaced in the press that uh, she had been uh, paid less than she ought to have been uh, for someone in her position, um, and that sexism uh, remained a problem at the times, really from 19, all the way up until uh, the present. Is that, is that fair? Well, I think it's one of the uh, themes I explore in my book because, yes, I mean, sexism is with us like racism, like other forms of bias and propaganda. These are hard to get rid of. But whether or not that was the case in Jill's firing, I, I doubt that just because uh, I have many differences with the publisher of the New York Times, the chairman and executive officer, but uh, he was, uh, Arthur Sulzberger was absolutely committed to doing something about the wage disparity and the fact that there were so few women in powerful positions. And as a result, uh, I think Jill's promotion, as quickly as it occurred, was partly the re result of that, uh, of that bias in favor of women at this point. And if you look at the newsroom today, you'll find it's roughly 50-50, uh, which is a, a huge difference. On the other hand, does sexism continue? Yes. Uh, do women have to work twice as hard sometimes to be considered for the same job as a man? Yes, but I think that's true in the corporate world. I think it's true everywhere. We're getting over it. We're making progress, but it's, it's not and, and when you were described as Judith Miller, the sharp-elbowed investigative reporter for the New York Times. Was I mean, there an echo? Cushy was the term, yeah. Cushy, aggressive. I mean, these would be uh, non-pejorative words for if they were being used for a man, but for a woman, uh, they were not. And I think that certainly contributed to the fact that uh, my reporting style was not appreciated by many of my colleagues, some editors, and many of the people I covered. 
Um, you, within a few years of being at the Times, you became a foreign correspondent. Right. Um, and when you were uh, your, the paper's bureau chief in Cairo, you were, along with Tom Friedman, one of the first reporters on the scene of the Marine barracks bombing in uh, Lebanon in uh, 1983. Um, I want to I wanna pick up something about that because I think it's a question that may be on the minds of, of um, uh, quite a few people here when they wonder about the quality, the amount of trust they can have in reporters reporting from difficult places uh, overseas. You write, uh, in such a climate, you're talking about the new climate of religious extremism in the Middle East, violent, violent movements in the early 1980s. You write, in such a climate, the competence and loyalty of a paper's foreign staff were critical. If our office managers, stringers, translators, or drivers were untrustworthy, we could be betrayed and our sources compromised. In authoritarian regimes, the situation, you say, is doubly complex. Several of us had long suspected that local time staff members were forced to cooperate with their respective intelligence services. In Cairo, uh, you're writing about your office manager, I would often wonder whether Gamal cooperated with the Mukhabarat, Egypt's secret police. I never asked, you conclude. So let's, uh, let's talk about this because we now have a situation which reporters are purporting to report fairly from places like Tehran where we know that they can't get the whole story uh, out. How much of foreign, how much journalism is compromised by that fear, by those dangers, do you, do you sense, in, in, for, for the foreign correspondent in Tehran or, or Cairo or somewhere else? Right. I think the pressures we were under in the 70s and the 80s are, are uh, they pale compared to what is going on today. I mean, I was thinking uh, the other day, I was on Fox talking about the Sean Penn story, for example. And this is an instance in which you have an activist and an actor pretending to be a reporter who has written some things, who goes and arranges an interview with one of the most dangerous uh, criminals in the world. But in the meantime, uh, 60 Mexican real journalists have been killed for writing about the corruption of the Mexican government, the, uh, the interaction uh, between the cartels and the military. Um, and to be a reporter in places like that and try and tell the truth is literally, it means your life. And uh, one reason I feel so strongly about some of the uh, exiles, some of the people whom we are waiting at our border is that many of the men and women who worked with American forces and with journalists in Iraq and Afghanistan, who under our law, they saved American lives. Under our law, they are supposed to be given priority for entry into our country. They are still waiting in queues. Their families are still in danger every single day. And we're talking about taking in 10,000 Syrians uh, when we haven't even taken in the people who have rescued us and who have kept us alive. I think the great strength of the New York Times as a newspaper, and I think yours as well uh, at the Wall Street Journal, is that you have foreign bureaus in places almost no one does anymore. Almost none of the broadcast networks, nobody operates full time out of these places. And so you're totally dependent on the men and women who are risking their lives to tell you the story. Now, are they telling you everything? And are you getting all of the story? No, you're not. And we can't, given what's going on and given the, given the great danger in which these people work. But I think it just makes, uh, it makes it essential that people who read newspapers and watch TV understand that they're not getting the same all of the story and read as much as you can from different sources because, but the pressures are enormous. I would not want to be uh, the reporter that I was uh, then in Egypt and going to 17 countries and taking, doing the things I did because today I'd be dead. That it'd be very clear. If I wrote some of what I wrote back then today, I would, I would have an unfortunate traffic accident in some city or I would be found dead in a hotel room with nobody able to do anything about it. So well, on it's that, very difficult. On that subject, um, uh, you are, I'm now 
nearly 100 pages into the book. You are reporting from Lebanon during the height of the Civil War. There is a Christian, or excuse me, a, yes, a Christian town that is under siege from uh, Druze militia, uh, and you decide to visit the Christian town. Um, you write, at the final station, three quarters of a mile from the town center, logic, charm, threats, pleas, bribes, and feminine wiles all failed. There was sniper fire along the road, the Druze captain warned us. If our car's tires were shot out, the evacuation would be impeded. Then we'll walk, I told him. Inga, your uh, colleague, photographer. photographer, stared at me in disbelief. Certain that two unarmed women would never take the dare, the captain grinned. If you please, he said, motioning us toward the town. I heard the first bullet about 200 yards down the road. After the fourth shot, I knew I had made a terrible mistake. Since <laughs> Inga would not permit me to take such a risk alone, I had endangered both of us needlessly. I told her we were turning back. The hell we are, she snapped at me. It was as dangerous to turn back as, uh, at that point as, uh, as, as to go ahead at that point, she said. We were going into the town if you had to drag me. So shut up and count the rifle shots, shots, she said. You'll need it for your story. There were 17. It was a good story. The Times put it on the front page. But it hadn't been worth the risk. So let's talk, talk a little bit about the risks that are worth taking and those that aren't worth taking uh, for the story. Oh, right. This is why young people make great foreign correspondents. <laughs> I, I mean, I, uh, I learned from that episode that I was not cut out to be a war correspondent. I uh, did not enjoy that. I didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel brave. I felt that I made a terrible mistake. And I didn't like the uh, but you, you tried kind of many danger. years later. You tried driving into an Al Qaeda yeah, I kept, training camp I in kept Afghanistan. Doing it. <laughs> uh. I kept doing it because you, uh, you know, I did want to get the story, and uh, I knew that Bin Laden was off that road. If only I could get there. And it was only when I had literally a Kalashnikov and an RPG pointed in my face that I decided that I had made another mistake and you know, perhaps I shouldn't go down there. Uh, but it's, some people are born war correspondents. I'm just not one of them. And I do it when I have to do it. I take a risk. But I think part of what's a kind of dangerous trend in our profession is the reward for the person who takes that kind of risk. Uh, I can think of several people at the New York Times whom I wouldn't have permitted out unescorted on their own simply because they would have endangered a photographer or a translator and they had no judgment. Uh, after a while, when I stopped becoming a day-to-day -day re reporter and became an editor, I realized that I was responsible for those people. And you had to reward people who sometimes didn't get the story who decided that it was more important to be responsible and keep the people who are depending on them, wives, family, husbands, children, um, translators, alive. And I lost a, my best, one of my best friends in Syria, Marie Colvin, who is one of the bravest correspondents I've ever met. And we had worked together. We worked together in Tahrir Square during the Egyptian Revolution. We had a, a hotel room overlooking the square. Um, she was unbelievable. She worked for a British newspaper, the London Sunday Times. She had an eye patch over one eye because she had lost an eye covering gorillas in one part of the world. She kept on doing this kind of reporting. She was killed in Syria uh, in a mortar attack after her editor had told her to leave the town that the uh, Syrian government was actually using her cell phone and their conversations to track her and to uh, fire, uh, to you know, hone in on where they were. And she said, just, I just need a few more interviews. I'll leave in the morning. And that turned out to be a fatal mistake. And um, It was the same story with Danny Pearl. You needed one more interview. One more interview. And I think it's the hardest thing in the world to say, no, I know it's a great story, but it's not worth my life, and it's not worth the lives of people who may depend on us. And another thing that happened 
is, to me anyway, in addition to discovering that I didn't like covering wars, they were noisy, <laughs> among other things, was that um, I got married late in life and suddenly there was someone else that I had to think about. And there was a dog that I had to think about. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, after a while, you hope you learn something from the mistakes you make as a young correspondent. And I learned that there are some stories that aren't worth it. Usually marriage is a reason to become a war correspondent. <laughs> um, let's fast forward a bit. Um, that was a joke. Uh, uh, kind of. <laughs> so in the 1990s, you started covering WMD. You spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union going to various germ, former germ colonies. You got a sense of the extent of the program. Then 9-11 happens and suddenly WMD is the biggest story. Uh, in uh, the world, and in one way or another, perhaps the defining story of your uh, career. Um, let's start talking about some of your sources after 9-11. Uh, Talk about uh, Ahmed Chalabi. Yes, Ahmed Chalabi, who is having, a, he's a, the Iraqi who, uh, if you believe uh, left-wing reporting in this country, is the man who lied us into the war. Um, he was a, an amazing uh, Shiite, intellectual, businessman, shyster, politician. Uh, there is a memorial for him tomorrow in Washington, which I'm attending. Uh, he was, uh, above all, a man who wanted to free his country from uh, what had been 20 years of sheer terror and horror under Saddam Hussein. And he was the one man that I know who was partly responsible for building support for the war quite openly through lobbying in our country and the development of friendly politicians and telling the story of what had happened to Iraq under Saddam. He was the one person who uh, stayed in Iraq through it all, and he died in Iraq uh, last, uh, last year. Um, because he never gave up hope that Iraq would be the kind of place that George Bush talked about when he uh, made the decision to invade. Uh, Chalabi was said to be a major source of mine, and I had even put that in a memo when I was in an email when I was in the middle of a turf fight with another reporter over who would cover him. But in fact, he played a very small role in my reporting, as did senior government officials. Most of the people that I talked to were people who were actually doing the intelligence, making the assessments, writing the analytical reports. They were people I had known for years and years. And they were the same government officials who had warned me long before terrorism or Osama bin Laden were even on the radar that there was this group called Al-Qaeda, which was really, really dangerous and no one was paying attention. And these were the same men and women who had warned me that the Soviet Union, um, and yes, I had known them for that long, because it was still the Soviet Union, was, um, was lying about its biological, the biological weapons treaty it had signed, that they had uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people. It turned out they had 60,000 people involved in a covert uh, biological weapons program, and they were weaponizing the world's worst, most dangerous uh, pathogens and germs and prepared to use them if they had to. And it was this recognition, uh, the, my, my awareness, the fact that I came to, to know what these germs could do, and we saw a little of it, just a taste of it here in New York after 9-11, when the anthrax letters were sent around less than a month after 9-11. Uh, I realized that weapons like that in the hands of rogue leaders or terrorists would be a terrible threat. Chalabi knew that, and I asked him for help in 1998 and on the WMD issue because everyone said Saddam was keeping his WMD. And, uh, no, the intelligence community believed it. Everyone that I knew, 16 intelligence agencies, told the president it was true. And Chalabi said to me, 
I don't have very much on that. <laughs> so, so Chalabi the, really was more skeptical he, than anyone. No, he, he, he certainly believed that Saddam had but a But he, he wasn't giving you. But he wasn't giving me anything. When he finally called up, very excited to say, I think I've got someone for you. Uh, I think I found someone. He was as surprised as anyone else. And he also said to me, uh, you know, this guy, I don't know what he's saying, if what he's saying is true. All I can tell you is we vetted him. He is who he says he is. Beyond that, it's your investigation that's going to have to reveal who he is and what he is. And uh, for me, Chalabi was just one source uh, for about two or three stories out of 15, I think, that I wrote in the lead up to the war. Well, one of your big sources was a British scientist by the name of David Kelly, with whom right. you were very close, and he was considered one of the key uh, investigators in, I guess it was UNSCOM at the time, or UNMOVIC. UNMOVIC, and UNSCOM before that. <clears throat> um, uh, you write about uh, a uh, dinner you had with him in, in London, and uh, you write, David hailed a cab for me and wished me luck. Looking back at the notes I had scribbled during our dinner, I realized that he had not repeated George Tenet's cavalier assertion that finding Saddam's weapons, of, uh, weapons and materials would be a quote-unquote slam dunk. Unlike so many other analysts, including me, David had not equated the absence of evidence confirming Iraq's claims uh, to have destroyed its banned weapons with proof of such weapons' existence. Yes, he believed that S Saddam was lying and was hiding such weapons, he told me, but he could not be certain. He said that he hoped we would soon enjoy another dinner together next time along the banks of the Euphrates. He then uh, shortly afterwards committed uh, suicide. So why, why were those doubts by David Kelly not heeded? And do you feel that that was a mistake in your own reporting not to think through his equivocations and hesitation about the strength of the evidence? I think it was. It's one of the mistakes I talk about in my book that I made. I was so certain because I had covered Iraq's program for so long, because I had covered, I had uncovered mass graves where Saddam had used chemicals on women and children and had seen the bodies of women holding dead infants. They were just frozen in time. I had seen Hun talked to hundreds of people who were victims of chemical weapons, and he was still refusing to cooperate with UNSCOM. So it seemed to me counterintuitive that a man would be suffering, make his country suffer under sanctions if he wasn't hiding something. Why would he do this? It didn't, it didn't occur to me that he might fear someone else even more than he feared George Bush, and that is Iran or his his other neighbors. Um, how, and David, how, how, David had that skepticism. Yeah. But I knew David well enough to know that he believed we would find something. And he also believed that Iraqis themselves were the keys to the program. When, he, when I told him I was going off, I stopped in London on my way to Baghdad because I was being embedded with a top secret unit that was charged with hunting for WMD. My husband asked me, how long are you going to be gone? I said, WMD in Iraq, I'll be back in three weeks. Three months later, we were still scouring around the desert. I was covering these soldiers who were looking for Saddam's missing weapons, which were subsequently found years later, some of them, the old weapons. But David, David knew that he wasn't going to make the mistake that so many of us made, which is to... That to only kind of look at the evidence and believe the evidence that supports your assumptions as opposed to the evidence that runs contrary to them. Now, the intelligence analysts saw it all. I was only to able to get bits and pieces of it. And we always said, you know, there may be more story, there may be more to this. But when the President of the United States asks his intelligence community, are you sure? And the CIA director says, slam dunk. And when you have all 16 intelligence agencies saying not only that they were certain, but that they were certain with a high degree of confidence in intelligence, that means something. I think there was very, no reason on earth for the president not to believe that, that what he was doing was for a just Very cause. quickly, 
of the, those 16 agencies, intelligence agencies and government that, that provided these assessments, one of them was more skeptical than the others. Right. That's the State Department. INR. INR under Carl Ford. Right. Why did you never talk to him? Well, I talk about this in the book. Because one thing I wanted to do was go back and look at my mistakes. And so I called Carl up, who is an old friend. And I said, Carl, your agency had doubts. And he said, yes, uh, yes, we had doubts about one part of the assessment, the aluminum tubes. But his agency had signed off on the overall assessment that Saddam had WMD. So to take issue with whether or not tubes, aluminum tubes, were part of a centrifuge program or not, for him was a secondary issue. But beyond that, he said to me, well, Judy, I couldn't talk to you, and I ordered all of my people not to talk to you. And I said, why, since you were the skeptics of the one story I was writing about, which was aluminum tubes? He said, well, I signed an oath not to talk about classified information. And I believe that oath, and I wouldn't do it, and I didn't do it, and I despise people who do it. <laughs> so, you know, call it a reporting failure or call it a, a, a failure on Carl's uh, part to understand that the Washington game was being played in a different way. But he really felt that the community had told the president the truth. And something that I think bothers me to this day is that incredible bumper sticker. It's one reason I wrote the book. They lied, people died. Many Americans, over half of the Americans, still think that we were lied into this war because of WMD. There is nothing to support that, not three independent reports that were done after the war to examine what happened. Nobody says we were lied. They got it wrong. Now, what's worse, lying, that's bad, or having 16 intelligence agencies, which are paid billions of dollars a year to look at nothing but this issue, at least a small group of men and women who are charged with that, and that they all got it wrong and all made terrible analytical mistakes. What should worry us more? Should they worry us equally? I mean, that's one of the questions I wanted to explore in the book, because I think intelligence is really hard. I know how hard it is to do this, because I tried to do it in the former Soviet Union when I went into these facilities and talked to, to former Soviet scientists, scientists. And it's really tough to get the information. But that also well, isn't my one, job. One person or two people who think that the administration lied us into war are Ambassador Joe Wilson and his wife, Valerie Flame. Uh, Flame. <laughs> Flame, um, as I wrote in my book, right. <laughs> and uh, so talk to us about that. Where, how does Valerie Flame um, appear in your life? Well, um, just to set the background, uh, in 2003, what was the date? I think July of 2003, Ambassador Wilson writes an op-ed in the New York Times right. saying that he had been sent as a former U.S. ambassador in Africa to Niger to investigate claims that appeared in the President's State of the Union address that Iraq was seeking to buy uh, yellow cake uranium from Niger. He went there, and in the op-ed, he said these claims were uh, baseless. And uh, I offered a report. The vice president and the administration must have known they were baseless. Nonetheless, they included these famous 16 words about the yellow cake in the State of the Union, prima facie evidence that Bush and Cheney were lying, were hyping the intelligence, were exaggerating it to make the case for war on the eve of the invasion of Iraq. So how did you become involved in this story? Oh, boy. Um, well, first of all, Briefly. I've, <laughs> yeah, I've never met Valerie Plame. Uh, I had met Joe Wilson in the Middle East, and I remember reading that article and saying, wow, because this was the first person who seemed plausible who was alleging that uh, this was a lie, that you know, the information we were getting was a lie. It got all of our attention. And so I, um, I was doing about four or five different things at that point, but I wanted to know, was it true? So I began asking people in Washington, was it true? I asked everybody. I would kind of open conversations uh, with it. It didn't seem to me as important as other things because to me, I was focused on biological and chemical weapons, which we knew Saddam had. 
And I didn't know whether or not, you know, no one thought he had a nuclear weapon at that point. Uh, so it, it, whether or not he was preparing to buy Niger just wasn't as interesting or important to me. But his claim, Joe Wilson's claim, was interesting that, you know, we were being lied to. So I started asking around, and lo and behold, I found out that Joe Wilson's wife worked at the agency, and I was told that she had actually gotten her, her husband the job of going out and talking uh, to the officials of this government to determine whether or not that sale had taken place, something she subsequently denied, but which turned out to be true, um, and that she... Uh, she knew all too very, very well what, uh, what the, the situation was, what the intelligence community believed about WMD because she was working in that area. Now, that struck me as a kind of newsworthy story to say that there was, if not a conflict of interest, a certain relationship here which was very interesting in light of Mr. Wilson's claims. So I went to the editor in Washington um, I met with uh, uh, the vice president's uh, chief of staff, uh, Scooter Libby. Who is, uh, who is in, in our audience, audience today, over there, Scooter. Mr. Libby. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I said, is this, is this true? And basically got an earful from different people, though at that point I didn't know very much. I didn't know her name. I didn't know where, in which division she worked. I just heard she had an intelligence job of some kind. She could have been at the State Department, at the Energy Department, the Pentagon, the CIA, but I was trying to find out. And um, Do you remember when you first found out that you worked at the agency? No. <laughs> I thought I did, but uh, I turned out to have been wrong about that. I was, you know, because there were so many other stories that had greater importance to me at the time, I would kind of use this oh, is this true that, you know, this relationship between the two of them is a kind of conversation opener? I think I must have asked 25 people, uh, maybe 30, about this relationship. But um, by then, it had become public knowledge thanks yes. to a column from... Conservative columnist. Robert Novak, Robert Novak. Whose source was? Not Scooter Libby. <laughs> it was... Richard Armitage, who worked for... Colin Powell, who was a skeptic of the war. So another fact that indicates that if we were being lied into the war, uh, the person who told a conservative columnist about this was actually a critic of the war. There's a lot that doesn't make sense about the bumper sticker, they lied, people died. Um, but uh, Richard Armitage was never, never prosecuted. And the prosecutor, in this case, Patrick Fitzgerald right. knew from the very beginning, almost from the moment that he was appointed as the special uh, counsel prosecutor, prosecutor that counsel. the leak had come from Mr. Armitage and had been confirmed by the CIA's own public affairs officer, Bill Harlow, right. uh, at the time, who was not in the neoconservative so-called uh, <laughs> uh, cabal. So nonetheless... Um, Mr. Fitzgerald starts subpoenaing a lot of reporters. He subpoenaed right. uh, Bob Woodward. He subpoenaed uh, Matthew uh, Cooper from at the time he was then with Time. And you got a subpoena. But you thought nothing would ever come of it. The lawyers at the New York Times thought you, nothing would ever come of it because you never wrote a story about it. That's right. Uh, <laughs> I went to our lawyer when I first heard subpoenas were going out. And I said, I think I may have a problem here. I've talked to a lot of people about this. And he said to me, relax, you didn't write a story. They're not, nobody's going to put you in jail for a story you never wrote. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Uh, because uh, even though Patrick Fitzgerald knew the source of the leak, he was trying to make a case against someone and against a senior, uh, a senior official as he possibly could. And I disclose in my book the circumstances which led him to bring a case against uh, Mr. Libby, uh, which was basically, according to uh, Scooter Libby's lawyer, uh, Patrick Fitzgerald uh, was basically, uh, basically had a meeting with uh, uh, Mr. Libby's lawyer in which he said, uh, you know, if you 
bring the vice president to this. If you can blame the vice president for this leak, the case against your client goes away. Now, this is often done, this kind of threat and this kind of negotiation, in cases in the SEC case or the mafia. But I've never heard of it being done in the middle of a war, which was going badly, uh, in the middle of uh, a politically charged environment like the one in which we were in. And this was front page news day after day after a day. Fitzgerald's investigation, uh, my decision to go to jail rather than talk to him about all of my sources, because he didn't want to know just about Mr. Libby. He wanted to know all of them, and he wanted to have access to all of my notebooks. And this was just not going to happen, as far as I was concerned, ever. Now, let me ask you did. about the support you got from your colleagues at the New York Times. Uh, here you are, we're now um, most of the way into the book. Uh, you're uh, about to go off to jail, and you're talking with Arthur Sulzberger Jr., right. uh, to this day the publisher of the New York Times, someone you had known from the early days when he was a young cub reporter uh, and you were coming up uh, from the ranks. And you write, um, you sort of made the decision, it looks like you might be going to jail. You write, Arthur leapt to his feet and wrapped his arms around me hugging me tightly, something he had not done since our days as reporters together in Washington. I know it's been rough on you, he said. I noticed that he did not contradict my assertion that he improved Keller's note. Um, I know how stressful it's been, he, um, he, he added, but that's all over now. You are not alone. We stood together motionless for a few seconds while I struggled to regain my composure. I promise you, Arthur told me, you will not be alone in this fight, Judy. I will never abandon you again. Uh, do you feel he honored his promise? Never say never. <laughs> uh, you know, clearly, the, I think uh, the Times's decision to kind of try and to try and blame me for uh, the WMD reporting, which they themselves had said was not the case in an editor's note, the decision to try and make the controversy over pre-war reporting and over other things that people were unhappy with about the times to kind of make it go away by blaming a reporter was a betrayal. And it was, uh, it was particularly painful because it came from someone whom I considered a friend. Um, but it happens, and, uh, and you understand why, I think I understand why he felt he had to do it. He had just had to fire or felt he had to fire the executive editor of the paper shortly before that. This is Hal Raines. This is Hal Raines, who had won, I think it's seven Pulitzer Prizes, the most in human history for the extraordinary coverage of 9-11. It was one of the most gifted, if difficult, editors I've ever worked uh, under, worked with. Um, I shared in the Pulitzer because of that that reporting and because of his leadership. And there was tremendous tumult at the paper. And the paper, like the country, just wanted this issue to go away. Let's not think about it. Iraq is a mistake. Everything associated with it is a mistake. And I think it kind of laid the groundwork for the horrible decisions that were made when uh, President Obama came in to just kind of walk away from what was achieved at a great cost. Do you think you achieved something by going to jail? Oh, boy, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, no, not in terms of what I wanted to achieve. I hoped that we would have a shield law finally through, get, work its way through the Congress, which would protect reporters in the way that priests and doctors and others are protected from talking about private information. That's really what I wanted. Uh, so that our very special role, because of the First Amendment, and there's a reason why free speech and free press are first <laughs> as an amendment, uh, that, that that would be honored and that the courts would undo the damage they've done. That hasn't happened. I did not achieve that. Uh, that being said, it was amazing for me because I learned so much about jail and the criminal justice system, and I lost 35 pounds. We should all go. <laughs> Spa, Alexandria detention facility. And, um, 
but it was the only thing I could do. I mean, it, there are some people said, gee, wasn't it hard? Wasn't it difficult? You know, there, there were many more difficult things I had done as a reporter, and I just knew it was, if you don't have a choice, it's not a tough decision. So uh, One last I still question for me, it. and then we're going to turn it over to audience questions. Is the New York Times a stronger, better journalistic institution today, or at least when you left it, than it was in 1977 when you arrived? That, sadly, is another reason I wrote the book. No, I don't think it is. I think, um, I don't think any newspaper, except perhaps yours, oddly enough. Right answer. <laughs> is, is as strong as it was. <laughs> um, because, in most part, the cutbacks have been so severe. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've all been reading about what's been going on at the New York Times. Um, the... <laughs> Uh, the buyouts, uh, it still has one of the strongest staffs in, in the world. It's still, I think, uh, a, an extraordinarily good newspaper. But what's happened at the Times is what's happened to all publications, and it's not just a question of money. It's that we uh, have let uh, opinion journalism suffuse what should be factual reporting in a way that simply wasn't permitted before. Um, whether it's the choice of the stories that you put on the front page, or the way in which you don't put two stories on, one with two versions of a very controversial event. Um, the fact that it's hard to tell an analysis piece, uh, what we used to call news analysis from a straight reporting piece. I think this damages uh, the paper's credibility. It raises questions in everybody's minds about agendas. You know, when I worked for the New York Times, there were people who wouldn't register for a political party if they had anything to do with political coverage. I switched from being a registered Democrat to an independent because I was in charge in the Washington Bureau as the deputy and the news editor of political reporting and reporters, and I didn't want to be accused of having a, you know, a, a bias or a prejudice. And, and that's kind of unimaginable today. Everyone's entitled to their editorial pages. What you're not entitled to do is have your own facts, your own facts appear uh, and own opinions appear in the guise of facts on the front page of our newspapers. And that's what worries me the most. And that is not a question of money. That's a question of the impact of social media and the fact that uh, we're now into click journalism. And if the more outrageous you are, as Donald Trump shows, the more likely you're going to be to get clicks. And clicks equal revenue. And revenue equals status and impact. And when you look at the number of interviews that the president, our president, has given to social media and to blogs and to people who wouldn't have gotten White House credentials when people were trying to do straight news. Uh, I think it's a, it's a reflection of what's happened to our profession. It's very hard to be a straight journalist today, to, be, to not have an agenda, or if you have one, to be open about it and to write in a way that's still skeptical. And I think that's the greatest challenge now for the New York Times and for every other paper that's still committed to objectivity as a worthy goal and standard. We're going to open it up to questions. So um, there are microphones on both, uh, in both aisles. Um, and I will be a ruthless <laughs> Stalinist. There's a question. That means one or two sentences with a question uh, after it. No speeches, please. So a gentleman up there on my left. Ms. Miller, I want to preface my question by saying I was always a, a very avid reader of you when you worked for the New York Times. But there, there are two statements you made. There are two statements that you made during your presentation uh, which triggered my desire to ask you a question. You referred to a lot of the reporting about Chalabi, and your exact words were left-wing reporting, which is sort of an oxymoron, because reporting by definition, as you just said, is supposed to be fact-based. The related question that I have is, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, did the media of this country 
let us down in the Iraq war. And I don't mean that because no, no, no. we all have different political points of view, whether it's the Wall right. Street Journal. No, the, I really, one of the reasons thanks. I wrote this book is I really don't think it did. One of the things I did was go back and I looked at all the stories that appeared and there were countless stories that appeared about the debate over whether or not we ought to go to war and why. I think what's hard for reporters to do is to separate themselves out from the mood of the times and I don't mean the New York Times, uh, we were all coming off of 9-11, especially if you lived in New York. Uh, we all wanted to live in a world where someone like Saddam Hussein could never get his hands on WMD, and a world in which the next 9-11 would be a chemical, a biological, or a nuclear 9-11. Did we question the government's reporting enough? I think we did. I mean, when you look at the New York Times, you will see stories by Jim Risen um, that questioned the administration's assertion that Saddam was training terrorists who were involved in 9-11. Now, this wasn't Jim Risen taking on the administration. He was reporting on a debate that went on within the administration. So it isn't as if these debates weren't occurring. But I think that if you read George Bush's memoirs, and for my sins, I had to read all of the memoirs <laughs> in order to write my own, you got a sense that people were still so angry and defensive and worried about what the future held, that the desire, that it wasn't enough for us to go in and kick butt, as George Bush might have said, in Afghanistan. It wasn't enough to take out the Taliban. We had to warn a state, don't even think about using WMD or supporting terrorism aimed at us. And I think the re reporters, and certainly I and, and others, had that major concern. I think me more than others, because I had seen what this stuff did, and knowing what 9-11 had done to us, and that was a conventional, an unconventional conventional attack. Knowing what chemical weapons would look like in New York, there was no way. Uh, if I'm not president, I wasn't president. I didn't take the country to war. I don't think the media did. The media reflected the, the prevalent view in this, in, in, of, this of that administration that we were not going to be held hostage or threatened in that way again. And what better country than Iraq, which had violated 17 UN resolutions, which had used chemical weapons on its own people, which was continuing to be sanctioned. This seemed like the obvious <coughs> lesson. So I don't think the media took us to war. And I think there was lots and lots of good reporting, solid reporting on the debate. And I think a lot of this looking back and blaming the media is like the New York Times blaming Judy Miller. Um, we are, I made many mistakes, but that's one of them I did not make. If I had come across information, and every time I did, it was in the paper. It wound up in the paper. Uh, if I came across information that contradicted basic premises about the war, I would have reported it. I did, other people did. This is like that bumper sticker. Bush lied, people died. It's more convenient and it's easier to believe that than it is to understand the truth and remember what things, what people, how people were thinking and feeling at the time. Over here on the right. Very good question, by the way. Uh, Judith, uh, having uh, talked about uh, opinion versus facts and, and uh, straight reporting. Uh, I've been concerned for so many years about the way the New York Times uh, treats Israel and uh, always feel that it's, there, it's, it's just not a, a true representation of what's really happening. I'd love to hear your comments on that. Uh, <laughs> now, now you are going to get me in trouble. <laughs> uh, the reporting on Israel. I think to a certain extent the New York Times falls victim to the same uh, standard, that, the same belief that we, a lot of us do, that it's a, it's a kind of, assumption that somehow Israel, because it's Western and a democratic country, and it's a Jewish country, ought to be better than everybody around it. And uh, I think the reporting in the Times was absolutely solid and is solid on Israel. 
But the problem is, every reporter in the world is based in Israel. If you have a, a, any kind of presence at all in the Middle East, you are not based as I was in the countries where the really horrible things go on. So what's missing from the reporting is I would always have a third paragraph of every story when I talk about a human rights abuse in Israel that says, and by the way, <laughs> Iran killed X number of people this year. Saudi Arabia does this routinely. This person in Jordan would have never even gotten to trial. And in Egypt, there are 40,000 political prisoners. To give you context of what the region is like, that puts the struggle that Israel is fighting in some kind of context. It's context that's missing um, too often. I think, uh, I mean, you, this is where you have to weigh in. <laughs> well, look, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the basic, I'll be brief. Uh, um, you know, the great line about journalism is, or journalists is that we're the herd of independent minds. And um, <laughs> if you, you know, what happened with a lot of the reporting before 9-11 was actually just that. Everyone sort of came to a kind of an agreement that Saddam had to have these things. And by the way, it wasn't just the Bush administration or the 16 intelligence agencies. It was Hans Blix who was telling us Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Blix was against the war. He was the chief UN inspector. He was the guy who was going around. But Blix made that case. Every single, in the New York Times, in the, New York in the Times, story by Judy Miller. Um, every single <laughs> intelligence agency in, um, uh, in, the, uh, in the Western world, the Mossad, the German BND, they all, they all fought that. And so that was really, you know, the kind of, the, the, the essence of the problem. Now, to go to the earlier question, you know, Ultimately, the only way that the truth about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction could have been uncovered is to have had an incredible scoop, an incredible mole inside Saddam's uh, uh, inner uh, circle who would have told you the amazing thing, the utterly counterintuitive thing that, as you put it earlier, Saddam had actually destroyed his stockpile yet wanted to maintain the fiction that it existed because he was more afraid of his neighbors than he was afraid of an, an invasion by the West, by, by the Bush administration. But that's almost a fantastic, fantastical notion. But the basic problem that you had there was groupthink. And I think the basic problem that you have with uh, reporting from Israel is groupthink. What's the problem? The problem is there are extremists on both sides. The extremists on both sides are threatening the center, which wants to reach some kind of peace deal. There are bad Israelis, there are bad Palestinians. God knows how this began. Cause and effect is very difficult to, uh, uh, to make out. And anyway, it's easier from a moral standpoint to tell the Israeli-Palestinian saga as a kind of a symmetrical story that is on the one hand, uh, uh, no one's to blame and everyone's to blame. That's why a phrase like the cycle of violence is so convenient because it way, allows you to say, well, this is just kind of going on and the way to step off the cycle is, to, is, to, is not to respond. So Israel, and this is the point you made earlier, and now we'll get to the next question, um, Israel as the so-called more civilized country is blamed because the question is, well, why are, why are you Israelis foolishly retaliating? Why are you feeding this cycle as opposed to, why are you trying to defend yourself against random people who walk out into the street and stab you? Um, Anyway, that's... I want to make one more point about the failure of the media and the failure of the New York Times. One of, bit of news in my book, which was covered in the Wall Street Journal and was covered in Real Clear Politics and was covered by Fox News, is the fact that I recanted the testimony I gave against Scooter Libby in my, in my book. That I came across more information afterwards when I began looking at the case and the trial, and I began spoke, speaking to Scooter Libby and his lawyer about this case that I never knew. And when I came across this information, I knew I had to write the memoir that said, among the things I got wrong was my testimony on Scooter Libby. Scooter Libby was 
and I did not talk about Valerie Plame. He did not mention that to me. That was a very difficult acknowledgement for me to make because I had made my stand uh, on the Bay of Tech, gone to jail to protect these conversations like this. To this day, you have not read that fact in the New York Times. The review that was done of, the new, of my book never mentioned the news of the book, which was the lead witness, a lead witness, against Scooter Libby, was recanting her testimony, and that an innocent man was probably prosecuted for a case that never should have been prosecuted to begin with. It's not just my new former newspaper. It's the Washington Post that has still not reported that. It's every major newspaper in the country. There is almost no newspaper or broadcast network other than the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and Real Clear Politics, which have covered the news in this book. Thank you. We have reached the end of our allotted hour. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. I urge you to read the book, whatever, you, whatever your views, and thanks to the New York Thank Historical Society. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm Alex Castle. I'm the manager of public programs here at New York Historical Society. And we thank you all again for joining us, our first public program of 2016. We hope to see you more this year. And uh, just a reminder that uh, Judy Miller's books are available for purchase in our museum store. It's on the 77th Street side of the building. She'll be signing the books uh, by the Batmobile on the Central Park West side of the building. So uh, we hope you join us for that. Thank you so much. <laughs>